Welcome to Media in Minutes. This is your host, Angela Toole. This podcast features in-depth interviews with those who report on the world around us. They share everything from their favorite stories to what happened behind the lens and give us a glimpse into their world. From our studio here at Communications Redefined, this is Media in Minutes. Today, we're talking with Brandon Presser. Called a rough and tough adventurer by Entertainment Weekly, Brandon has visited more than 130 countries. He was a star of Bravo TV's travel series, Tour Group, and is the author of The Farland, a nonfiction adventure thriller. He currently writes for a variety of influential publications, including Bloomberg Business Week and Travel and Leisure. Hi, Brandon. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, how's it going? Great. I have to say, how are you doing? You just got back from a long trip. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Um, I was just in uh, Bhutan uh, doing a story for Vogue magazine. And wow. the journey there and journey back is uh, a full two days in a steel tube in the sky. Oh, my goodness. Do you have any tips on to make it through that, <laughs> that two day traveling in the I like to get really tired before. So the night before I fly really far, I'll only get, you know, three or four hours of sleep so that you can like okay. really conk out on the flights. Um, and I also like to bring a project. So, you know, uh, have, you know, five or six like really important emails that I need to do something that can keep you busy for at least like three or four hours um, yeah. on any part of the journey. I like those tips. <laughs> I have to tell you, I'm so excited to talk with you, and I'm really not sure where to even begin. You've been to 130 countries, written more than 50 guidebooks, as well as recently publishing your first nonfiction book. You've hosted a television show on Bravo, graduated from Harvard, and I could go on. So why don't you tell our listeners, you know, how it all began, which I've read was as a professional nomad in Paris. <laughs> uh, Sounds like a book, no, all of it. <laughs> no, 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 no. So I, I, I was not a nomad in Paris. No, I had a a, a very, very real desk job um, in okay. Paris. But I was always the kid when I was little, my parents would be like, you know, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for your birthday? I'd be like, uh, how about a trip to Japan? <laughs> and they'd be like, ha that's really cute. Like, here's, you know, uh, a Lego set of an airplane, or, you know, <laughs> or, or like a book about Japan. And um, yeah. I just, I was really into atlases and I was really into maps and I was really into memorizing capitals. You know, I'd like, my grandparents would come and visit. I'd be like, ask me what the capital of, you know, Bolivia is. And they're like, <laughs> okay, you think this is fun? Sure, whatever. Um, and that kind That's of evolved great. into just like, what can I do to travel? What are the opportunities I can give to myself to go out and see the world? So I, I studied uh, history of art and architecture at Harvard uh, with a focus on Asian art and this idea that I was going to become an architect who designed hotels. Um, I, okay. I wanted to create hotels that uh, felt native to the landscape, you know, opportunities for um social interaction I was just like really interested in the social element of architecture and then I kind of got to a point where I was like I think I actually just like staying in hotels <laughs> and I don't think that I need to like get this master's degree in order to um 
nurture this love of hotels. Um, and, and then the, the Paris thing was, uh, I worked at the Louvre after college because I was um, an art history major. And okay. they give you so much time off when you work for the government in France uh, that I um, was backpacking around Australia um, and then kind of found my way uh, into travel writing in that, in that capacity. Wow. And so your way was into Lonely Planet. Yeah. So I've written some um, magazine articles uh, just for fun about um, traveling through Europe and living in Paris. Um, I grew up speaking both French and English, so it was easy for me to um, move between uh, the two worlds. I, I, I grew up in Canada and right. um, and then um, saw an opportunity to apply for um, a travel writing position at Lonely Planet um, and just kind of threw my hat into the ring or whatever people say. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and I think because they were looking for a very particular skill set where you are really good at the macro and you're really good at the micro. So like you can take a destination, digest it and give it to a reader in 300 words. Wow, but you're right. also like so detail oriented that you know that, you know, the bus from, you know, uh, Bangkok to Champagne is going to be at 10 o'clock, 10, 15, 11, 45. Like you need to have both of those skill sets, which I think is a bit tricky. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what they were looking for in the interview process. So you did some pretty amazing work there. Tell us a little bit about your experience. Sure. Yeah. So basically you kind of joined this guidebook writing army in a sense. And Roughly every quarter, they have a short list of books that are needing research. Um, and you are in this author pool where you can pitch to the different editors to join different writing teams. Um, so my work kind of fluctuated between Southeast Asia and Northern Europe. Um, and okay. you research them at very different times. So I found myself in Thailand basically every year for about seven years. Um, for from September until Christmas. Um, and so every year I'd be going back to Thailand and updating the information, looking for new things. Um, and I was fortunate enough to do all sorts of other countries as well. So I spent a lot of time in Japan, spent a lot of time in uh, Malaysia, up to Canada, the Caribbean. Um, I did Turkey, Mauritius, and then one of my wow. big ones was Iceland. Uh, after the financial crash, they sent me to Iceland to reboot the entire book from zero because wow. so many hotels and restaurants had gone bankrupt. There were so many new businesses that were taking new loans that the old guide was essentially obsolete. And we started from square one. Um, and that was a passion project of mine for about five, six years. Uh, and then I decided guidebooks didn't really feel like the way that people were consuming travel anymore or yeah. travel advice. So I kind of um, moved on from that to start another phase of my career. Yes. And today you focus your attention on emerging destinations and the intersection of luxury and adventure travel. Can you talk about some of your recent examples of work? Yeah, absolutely. I, I sort of pivoted to more American um, publications when I moved away from doing guidebooks. And I find that a lot of American publications are very aspirational or very luxury leaning. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to find a way to not just kind of luxuriate in the Michelin starred food and the 
massages and right. uh, you know for me like travel has always been about connectivity is like understanding how other people live how other people conceive the world and you know creating these uh points of contact um and impact so for me it's always really fun to be the first person on the ground to be boots on the ground in a destination mm -hmm. like senegal that has a direct flight to the United States, but not a lot of people are going, you know, a place like Kyrgyzstan, where we hear a lot about Mongolia. Um, why aren't we kind of hearing the same narrative about a country that is very similar in its nomadism and also in its landscape? So places that um, are ascendant, which was really fun and really ramping up before the pandemic. And then I think the pandemic kind of brought everything back to sort of a travel 101. Suddenly everyone wanted to go back to France, England, and Italy. So yes. this year especially has been sort of recasting that. So Portugal is really popular, but I just did a big feature from Bloomberg on Madeira, Portuguese island off the coast of Morocco. Mm. You know, so Portugal adjacent. And and I, I just did a very big story for Bloomberg as well on um, Wales. One of the longest stories I've, I've done for them, it was over 3,000 words. Um, wow. Again, sort of like UK adjacent, right? Like, yeah. so finding these moments of adjacency that are places that seem obvious but unvisited. Yes. So how do you pick your next destination? It's a lot of sifting through pitches. Um, I think since, you know, we've really come out of the uh, pandemic, um, I've, the amount of pitches that I get is even more than it was before the pandemic. Uh, if that's even, yeah. if that's even How's possible. How's that possible? Right? I know. I, I didn't know it was possible. Um, there's and even more so PR people now. Even more journalists have gone over to be PR people. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's unreal. I mean, the amount of emails that I get every day, the volume is uh it's really next level. Um I think for me though, I have just been doing this for such a long time that I see kind of the rolling thunder in the distance. Like I know mm -hmm. what countries we're all gonna be talking about in 2025 because. I know of the hotel investment that's happening in the place that will not bear fruit until 2025. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I have a good sense of what is interesting. I see governments changing. I see, you know, developments happening and it's not just like a very reactive, oh, this place is having a hotel opening in six months from now. Like I'm looking really far down the line. Like I already have yeah. a pretty good sense of the things that I want to do next year wow. already. It, yeah. And a lot of your stories are print, right? So you do have to plan very far out. Yeah. I do a lot of print stories for Bloomberg, especially. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we're doing is we're having a conversation about where we want to go next year. And then we plant that seed maybe in, you know, the, where to go in 2023 roundup that the magazine does at the end of the year, at the beginning of, you know, and sort of end beginning of the year. And then we usually take those destinations and then kind of germinate them and like grow them out into a bigger um, feature. That's exactly what it happened, for example, with um, Madeira and with Wales. They were okay. part of our package uh, and then they both got features in their own right. And then I have another story like that that I'm writing. Um, yeah, just looking at some places even for 2024 already. Wow. 
I love some of your current work that includes going undercover, such as the one where you worked <laughs> with the top multi-million dollar wedding planners with some of the top ones. Yeah, what yeah. was that like? Um, that So that column, that series has been alive and well for about five years now. Um, yeah. And we do it, we do it quarterly. Um, and a lot of people are like, you should do it monthly. Like you should yes. be doing it all the time. And <laughs> it's sort of like, it's like a big piece of like very sweet candy. Like if you have it every day, like you, you won't crave it. So like mm -hmm. we try to not do it super often. Um, and four times a year seems to be a really good rhythm for the column. Yeah. And um, it's really fun because it happened totally organically. There was no board meeting where we were like, we should do this. We should, you know, have me go undercover. It started in a, with like a, a lunch with a friend of mine who's a publicist who used to be a publicist for an airline. And he was like, what would be like a really fun and unique way to cover an airline? Because airlines have such a hard time getting yes. the press that they deserve. And and it's interesting because I actually think that people have airline allegiances more than ever. Like I will pay an extra hundred dollars to fly on Delta right. um, to avoid another airline. Um, and I think a lot of people are feeling the same way lately, especially with so many delays. And, and this was at a time when really airlines just like weren't getting any exposure. So yeah. we were like, well, what if I was a flight attendant? Like, what, what if I actually worked for the airline for a day? Like, what would that feel like? And the story, you know, it took a while to get certain clearances and do this, that, and the other. And the story did really well. And we kind of looked at it, it like phenomenally well. And we yeah. sort of looked at it and was like, well, what's the, what's, what happened here? What nerve did we, did we um, hit on? And so we decided that I would be a butler at the Plaza Hotel to see if it was this sort of service okay. element that had gotten people hooked and it, it turned out it was uh because that story did even better and then yeah. the machine sort of started where i worked on a cruise ship and i've worked on a super yacht and i've worked on a private jet and i worked at nobu as an hd <laughs> i worked at disney um all sorts of everything and all in between and I'm, I'm doing one uh in january uh that'll run probably in february um, so we have a few in the pipeline um they're great i think it just yes. like it it, it it examines sort of the fatal flaws of a lot of travelers like analysis paralysis people who are spoiled with choice they just don't know what to do and then on the opposite hand there are people who live in absolute certainty where they're like you know i want my chicken uh right. like cut into cubes and i want <laughs> like 50 percent kale and 50 percent spinach and like oh you know so so it's really funny to dip into both of those personality types where people are just like well i'm infinitely wealthy i could order a pizza from domino's or i could take the private jet to milan for pizza for dinner <laughs> right <laughs> so, my kids yeah. were talking about that last night at dinner about if you know the powerball being being so high right now and and if asking my husband if he won or something like that. And he's like, if we won, do you think we'd be having the meal at the crock pot right now? Or we'd be <laughs> exactly. We'd be going out somewhere. <laughs> so I'm sure it's very hard to pick. And I don't want to ask you what's your favorite destination, but what have been some of your travel adventures that stick out the most? 
Sure. I mean, I get, I, so I get that question a lot. Like, what is your favorite destination um, mm -hmm. from people who, do, you know, who don't work in the industry? It's a cocktail party question. And my answer is always uh, favorite for what or favorite for who. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, a lot of destinations bring a, have a lot of different attributes. And I think purely for nature, for staring out into some vista and just being like, wow, um, there are two destinations that come to mind immediately. Uh, one is Norway. Northern Norway is just, there's nowhere on the planet like it in the Lofoten Islands. Um, and even north from there, just the mix of mountain and sea is incredible. And as someone who wrote many iterations of the Iceland Guide for Lonely Planet and have a lot of Icelandic friends and absolutely love Iceland, I've been to Iceland 40 times. I think oh, wow. I... And betraying Iceland by saying that I think Norway is actually more captivating and more beautiful, but it it genuinely is. And the other location is Tahiti, uh, which for the exact same reason gives this mm. really stunning mix of mountain and sea. In Norway, is it through hiking or what's the way that you experience it in the northern area? Yeah, a lot of hiking. Um, I think there's uh, a lot of really well-marked trails, uh, mm. especially in the north. Um, it's a great place to have your own adventure. Um, you know, the price, it's quite expensive. Um, yeah. You know, labor is very expensive in Norway. The exchange rate is not particularly favorable to the dollar, but it's a really good place to do it yourself. A lot of information is you know, data pointed on Google Maps. Um, there's a variety of really high quality places to stay, uh, even if you're booking your own thing. Yeah. Um, and then Tahiti is sort of the opposite. I think, uh, luckily, because um, I speak French, um, you know, Tahiti is a very easy destination for me. Mm. Um, but it's kept its Polynesian flavor intact much more so than Hawaii. And um, I think I read a statistic once that more people visit Hawaii in 10 days than visit Tahiti in an entire year. Really? Um, yeah. And, it, and when I say Tahiti, I don't just mean the island of Tahiti, French Polynesia. Right, right. Uh, Tahiti is sort of a byword for French Polynesia. And French Polynesia has uh, five archipelagos of islands, mm -hmm. all with like very distinct personalities and topography. You have the Society Islands that are the most famous. So that's Tahiti, you know, Bora Bora, Marea, many, many, Huahine, many more islands, Raiatea, Taha. And then you have the two Amotus, which are coral atolls, which are very low, sandbanks, incredible diving. You have the Marquesas, which is a, a little bit more far flung. And those are the individuals who there are really the custodians of Polynesian culture. And then you have the Astrals and the Gambiers. Wow. Do you have an article that, that talks about Tahiti? Um, I do. Uh, so the book that you mentioned, the nonfiction book uh, that I wrote, um, a lot of the book is actually based on Tahiti. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's a lot of information, a lot of information there about sailing um, through Tahiti over to um, the Gambiers and then beyond French Polynesia to an even more remote island called Pitcairn Island. Um, oh, wow. Okay. We're going to yeah. talk about that a little bit uh, at the end because it's really sure. important and I want to hear more definitely. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, you've said this in other places, but why is travel so important? That's such a tough question. I, I think one of the th things that I'm most interested in right now is, you know, just with the world 
being such a polarizing place with so many things yeah. going on politically that have been exacerbated by the pandemic um, that uh, travel uh, bestows the power to change your mind. And I think, you know, like one of the most powerful things that we can do as a person is develop an opinion on something and then have it radically change. Yeah. And I just, I love the idea that you go to different places and you get different ideas. Um, and I think it's only through cultural exchange that we can kind of make better sense of our lives. Uh, and there's so many decisions that are being made around the world that feel extremely myopic when you look at the world on a greater scale. And there's a lot of talk about sustainability right now and, you know, a lot of worries about greenwashing because, oh my God, do I get pitches about hotels that are just like, oh, we're zero carbon, whatever. And I right. dig for, for five minutes and I realize like just how much greenwashing is going into saying a hotel is sustainable, but it, not, it isn't actually sustainable. My bigger concern is social sustainability. You know, we have social media and it was just in Bhutan and all these kids are on TikTok and it's just yeah. sort of unreal how um, much, you know, social media can link all of us together, but it can also have us all wanting the same things mm. in, in, in sort of a bad way. And, and while I think, you know, climate change is an issue and, you know, that travel can be a driver for good, I think we really have to remember that it's important to be socially sustainable as well. Like, what are we doing to keep communities cultural identities intact and not just becoming sort of bland, banal, world. <laughs> single world of, you know, big box stores and yeah. TikTok. That is so important. If you could live anywhere, where would it be? That's kind of another question of like, <laughs> uh, live there for what? You know, so... So if I won at this time yeah. in your life, maybe. <laughs> yeah, if I won the Powerball and had the opportunity, I'd be like very greedy with my answer, and <laughs> I would have um, an apartment in Paris. Uh, mm. I would have apartment in Tokyo, and uh, then you know some cottage lined with windows on some Icelandic fjord. Uh, wow. to get away and get some writing done. I think um, there's this saying in Iceland, um, like kraima, like simmering. And it's the simmering of the earth. You know, there's always a volcano going off or there's like a small earthquake or something like that. But it also has this dual simmering of creativity. And um, I find that my mind simmers when I'm in Iceland um, and I, I come up with really good ideas for stories uh, while I'm there. So I would love to have a cottage in Iceland that I can ex escape to and write. Oh, that sounds perfect. <laughs> I hope you win the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I do have to ask about PR professionals, of course. You know, how do they help you do your job or do you have any pet peeves besides the thousands or <laughs> how many in emails in your inbox? Yeah, I mean, okay. So, you know, when every, we all have this in our life, we have that friend or that like quasi friend uh -huh. that disappears into thin air. And when you hear from them, you know, they want something. Mm. do you know what I mean like yes, we all have yes. that person in our life where we're like oh yes you know, <laughs> Sally just sent me a text being like hey how are you 
Right. Um, <laughs> what is she going to want from me? Right. And I, that is a pet peeve in PR. Like I, I think, you know, you're supposed to nurture relationships. Um, and it doesn't mean that you need to be checking in with me you know, once a month, like, God, right. that, that, you don't ask overkill. for more emails, or calls. But, <laughs> but don't be, don't be the person that is only creeping out of the woodwork to pitch me something that they know that I'm not going to be interested in. The yeah. best relationships that I have in the PR world are people that come to me knowing that it's something that I'm actually going to want to do based on the articles I've written before. I'm diligent in updating my personal website. Mm-hmm. And that website is really only for publicists so that, um, you know, they have a sense of who I am. I say right in my bio, the things that I'm interested in, the things that I stand for. And yeah. then you can see my archive of articles that I update. I update it like once a quarter of like some of the articles that are most, you know, pertinent or at least remain to my interests. And yeah, I just don't like when a public when I don't hear from a publicist at all, and then suddenly they emerge and yeah. they're like, "Hey, friend, here's like the things <laughs> I want you to do for me and, uh, and do for me." Will you do that, this traveling family story in the Midwest? Or <laughs> yeah, like it just doesn't. It rubs me the wrong way, um, and right. I find that I think I fully appreciate, truly, and I say this from my heart. I fully appreciate that PR is very two-sided in the sense that a publicist's job is not only to broker a relationship between a product and a journalist, but they're also, there's so much babysitting and handholding that goes on on the client side. I'm fully aware that half the job is being like, it's okay, client. Will, I got you. Don't (laughs) worry. We're like, I know how it goes. However, sometimes I get so much of the babying of the client that I can't get my job done. Mm. And there are publicists and PR firms that I are that are in my orbit that I audibly groan when I have to deal with them because I know that. I know that they're a hindrance to getting my job done. There was a project that I was working on recently that I had to put in like three times the amount of time because the publicist that was the go-between was not answering emails fast enough. And I don't, and I'm not saying answering emails in 24 hours. I'm saying answering emails in like four days. Oh my goodness. Wasn't even answering them within (sighs) a week. And it's just like, I don't expect an unrealistic amount of yeah. I try I try I thought to a few publicists. hours was what was <laughs> no like you know? <laughs> it, like I want to hear from you within an, within the week that I'm emailing with right. you and there are some there are some publicists I work with that are just so against the grain that I find every which way to avoid them and then it's such bad news for their client and then there's yes. publicists that I love and adore And whatever client that they're going to bring to me is just, it's going to be in the back of my mind when I'm in a pitch meeting with all of my editors and they're like, what else is on your desk? I'm like, well, here are all like the the things. And, you know, clients, you know, from favorite PR people wind up in my stories all the time because, you know, we've built the relationship. Yeah. That's all. I mean, that's what public relations is, relationships. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's good advice. 
I want to talk a little bit about your series that you're a host of on Bravo Tour Group, in which you led a group of adventure seekers around the world. Was that challenging going from, you know, print journalist, and I know you've done some other on-air, but to on-air entertainment host? I think for me, the mission has always been like, let's get people to travel. And so this was sort of another opportunity with an even bigger platform. Uh, So I was really excited about the opportunity um, because I just want people to travel to get to know the world better and not treat travel as a commodity. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, you know, everyone said saying like, oh, I collect experiences and and that's nice. And, 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 you know, a little buzzy and I'm glad that people are collecting experiences and not collecting things, but in a way, like, I, I don't want it to just an experience to be a commodity either. Like it doesn't have to be performative. It doesn't have to be on social media. It doesn't have to be a thing that you come home and brag about. Like, I, I just want, I just want people to meet each other from, from different backgrounds and, and, and learn things. And I think that that was sort of the premise of the show that really enticed me uh, because it was on Bravo. It had the Bravo polish, which was sort of ended up being like real housewives meets right. national geographic. And so there were certainly touching and poignant moments peppered throughout, but there was definitely also like a girl who like slapped another girl. Oh, <laughs> so, so it was it was tricky it was stressful but it it was fascinating to see how you know like a big budget tv show is made behind the scenes like I certainly yeah. learned a lot I certainly learned a lot about that um and, and so that was sort of a fun learning experience for me Yes, we're go- we'll, we'll link to all these things in our show notes for listeners so <laughs> there's going to be a lot there for them to follow up on um what are your favorite secrets and tips to plan the perfect vacation? You know, maybe for somebody um, that doesn't do it often, but they really want to experience other cultures and, you know, around the world. I like to use some math um, when I'm planning a trip, which is um, if you have seven days, don't let your flight be more than seven hours. So six mm. days, six hours, 10 days, 10 hours. Obviously, it's not like a total rule, but right. it's sort of, I think it's some good advice to follow. You know, if you have a week off from work, yeah, you can get to Europe. It's a seven hour flight, you know, that it'll get you there and back. And that's like a respectable trip. If you have a week off from work, don't go to Australia. Like you don't, (laughs) you don't have the time. I mean, this is, I'm saying this for for an American uh, listener, of course. Um, But just think critically about how far you can realistically go. Because if you're going to spend all of your time in the plane and all of your time getting over the jet lag, that's not a holiday. And you're not even really going to delight in all of the things that are on your itinerary because you're just so overtired. I think there's a lot to be said for considering places that are closer to home and much more um, diverse and surprisingly different than you would think. I think a lot of people, for example, avoid Canada or, you know, they don't even consider a place like Quebec City, which is some of the architecture in Quebec City is older than a lot of the architecture in Paris. Um, You're going to get that Beauty and the Beast, Loire Valley vibe. Uh, It's a one hour flight from the Northeast. 
Wow. Right. Um, so it's things like that to think a little bit more out of the box. You know, if you have four days, don't go to Paris. You don't have the time. You don't have time. Um, so that rule of hours versus days, I think, is really good to apply to all of the trips that you're planning. Um, another thing that you should remember is end the trip with a reward. And like, think about your trip like a meal. So you okay. have a three course meal, like an appetizer, a main dish and a dessert, like plan your trip exactly like that. So you mm. land, you've just traveled a distance, you're tired, do a little something at the beginning of the trip. That's the, an appetizer for the trip, right? Like yeah. you were going to Thailand, um, you know, start with a couple of days in Bangkok where you're like, okay, like I'm going to luxuriate in my hotel, but I'm also going to like pop out to do a little street food. I'm going to pop out to do a little shopping. Right. Then you have your main dish, which would be like Chiang Mai, you know, you're going to this uh, Northern Thailand, like this incredible city that sort of has these urban elements, but also these Buddhist elements. And then, uh, you know, you're visiting these uh, farms where elephants are being rehabilitated and you're going on hikes with uh, local indigenous people and you're really in the meat of the trip. And then yeah. your dessert is the reward where, you know, you're going to go to Kosamui. And you're going to sit on the beach at your beautiful Thai resort and you're going to have, you know, <laughs> okay. just make sure you end, end with dessert, end with dessert. It doesn't matter what else you're doing in the trip, but like, don't get on the plane at the end of your trip, put your most expensive hotel at the end of the trip and don't get on the plane at the end of the trip being like, oh my God, I'm totally exhausted. Wow. I love that. Such great advice. So before we go, as promised, I really want to talk about your new book, The Far Land. It won the SATW Lowell Thomas Prize for Best Book of the Year. The New York Times Book Review gave it a lovely review. And Tom Hanks called it more addictive than crack cocaine on his Instagram. I want to know how you got Tom Hanks to read it. And tell us more about the book. The, so the book is essentially, in short, 200 years ago, a British vessel disappeared off the coast of Tahiti and everyone thought that the sailors had drowned. It turned out that they had found an uncharted island and they all moved onto the island and one by one started killing each other in a, like a very <gasps> Lord, of, Lord of the Flies kind of way. Right. Fast forward to today and there are still descendants of those people that live on the island and they live completely disconnected from the rest of the world because no airplane can land there. The island's simply too small and to um, vertiginous. And uh, so only a cargo freighter connects to the island four times a year. I had the opportunity wow. to go for work and I usually come away from uh, an assignment for a magazine, kind of, I write it, I'm done and I'm on to the next, but I got right. totally obsessed with this story. So I ended up writing a book that operates in both timelines that seesaws back and forth telling this very kind of real life survivor TV show element from 200 years ago. And then I go into the mechanics of how a society off the grid works today. Um, and it sort of comes yeah. together and each timeline really amplifies the other. And Tom Hanks actually got a hold of a rough draft of it <laughs> early on and reached out to me and was just like, this is the craziest thing I've ever read and I would be happy to endorse it. And so I was thrilled uh, that that happened. That is amazing. So can we expect a movie coming? <laughs> with Tom Hanks? I mean, 
I would I would love that a movie or a TV <laughs> show. It is some complicated stuff. So I think as yes. like a little mini series, it would work wonderfully. So everyone cross your fingers and hopefully there'll be something in the future. We will. Do you have any more books in the works? Um, I have a few things that I'm thinking about um, okay. that I'm kind of quietly working on, but um, we'll, we'll see. Time will tell. <laughs> Awesome. We cannot wait to keep watching all the wonderful, watching and reading all the wonderful work you do. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much. Yeah. And how can listeners connect with you online? Um, I use my Instagram a bit uh, at brand press. The first five letters, my first name and last name. Okay. Uh, that's probably easiest. Or you can visit my website, brandimpressor.com for contact info. Thank you. And we can order your book on Amazon or, or anywhere books are sold. Anywhere books are sold. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. That's all for this episode of Media and Minutes, a podcast by Communications Redefined. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. We'd love to hear what you think. You can find more at communicationsredefined.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Angela Toole. Talk to you next time. Bye.